All right. Well, hey, Calvary Church, good morning. We are so excited that you're here. Thanks for uh, worshiping together already through song and excited about how we're going to continue to give worth to God and worship Him through His Word. And we have an opportunity uh, every week and in a unique way next week um, to together, right, as a group, what we're striving to do is to build a body of disciples who personally and collectively reach and impact other people with God's love and truth. And we celebrated uh, the amazing opportunity at Trunk of Truth. And as I uh, kicked the dead horse last week about the opportunity we have next week uh, through our special Thanksgiving service, it's going to be an amazing time of celebrating through baptism uh, people who are growing as disciples. It's going to be an amazing time with a bunch of young families up here with young kids who want to have their children be part of this body and within this body to grow as disciples. Tomorrow, uh, next week's going to be a great time celebrating growth in people's lives and commitment to growth in people's lives as disciples. And it's also an opportunity for us as a body collectively to also reach out and try to impact others with God's love and truth. And we're going to do that by giving out of the blessings that God has given to us to try to bless other people. And so the way we're doing that next week is if you would love to participate. There's a way for you on your way out the door at that amazing kiosky thing. There's all sorts of tags. Those tags are not for you to steal one and to like, you know, put your own label on what's on there and to use it for your Christmas presents. That is not what it's for. Those tags, there's tags with turkeys or gift cards um, on them. And there's also brown paper bags, brown paper packages wrapped up in strings. The brown paper bags, those are not for you to cut up and wrap brown paper packages. What we'd love for you to do, like we shared last week, is we're going to have an opportunity next week to give to folks who have different needs in our community, in our body, in our church, in our neighborhoods. And we're going to give through gift cards, we're going to give through food baskets, and we have a great chance together to participate in that. And so what we've invited you to do is if you're interested in doing that, excited about doing that, grab one of those tags. Whatever you grab, what do you do? Yes, Don Diane. <laughs> yes, and you don't bring back the tag, you bring back whatever's on the tag. I don't want any of you turkeys in here bringing back the actual turkey tag and being like, I brought my tag back. No, bring back a turkey, okay? And that is not your spouse, like an actual butterball, all right? If you take a brown paper bag that has the items in it, then that is what you should and you must put in the item, those things. Now, this is actually really important for food count, and I know some of you are like, no, it's not. It actually is. Um, we use that to make sure we're on track to, we use the count of of the items that have been taken to make sure we're on track to be able to provide to people the things that we've committed, okay? That's how, that's our logistics. That's how we track it. And so if you just take a picture of it and then go on your merry way, we're not going to have a right count, which means we're going to either have less food potentially, okay? So take the item, return whatever that reflects, or put it in the bag, okay? And it's going to be a great Sunday. We're really excited. Uh, it's baptizing children's dedications, uh, celebrating God's goodness to us, and being able to bless other people. It's also the Sunday that you bring back your Operation Christmas Child shoeboxes, if that's the way that you want to participate and serve. And there's lots of information in the kiosks about that uh, as well. So we're just excited about the ongoing ways that God's given us to serve and reach other people and to celebrate what he's doing in our body. Um, so thank you for being part of that. It is an exciting time at Calvary Church, and it's great to be part of that. Uh, so let's jump into uh, our word text. I'm going to pray because <clears throat> um, what I realize every week, uh, and you know, 
this week particularly, unless there's nothing whoever's up here can say that impacts you or encourages you or changes you. Uh, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's the work of the Spirit working through His Word in our hearts <clears throat> to draw us, to teach us, to encourage us. And that's what we want Him to do. And I hope you come expectantly. I know, I'll be honest, when I was on sabbatical or sometimes even when I'm not preaching, um, <clears throat> man, I, I, there were moments that I would just kind of grab my coffee, I'd just zip in here, and my brain would still be like, right? And so it was like that. It's like that most of the time. And so what I learned to do on sabbatical when I was visiting other churches, I would literally that morning just start preparing myself, just praying and calming and pulling up to that church and walking to that church expectant and praying, God, I'm coming, hoping and expecting to hear something for you through the Spirit. Will you uh, meet me? Uh, and that was meaningful for me. And so I hope you come expectantly. And <clears throat> if your expectations are met, that's only because the Lord has chosen His grace and His favor to work that Sunday through the Spirit. And so that's what I'm going to pray for today. And we'll jump into it. Father, we are thankful for the opportunity to celebrate through baptisms and baby dedications next week <clears throat> what you're doing in people's lives and our lives. And so thank you for that. Thank you for life change. Thank you that you're a God who doesn't leave us where we are. Um, and you pursue us, and you shape us, and you grow us. Thank you for the opportunity we give, have to give to other people and to show their love to them, uh, show their, your love to them through what we can do. And Father, I pray for our time now as we continue to think about the people that you want us to be and the lives that you want us to live. Um, will you work through this time? And I pray there's any distractions in my heart or in my mind that you will remove those. If there's any distractions uh, in the hearts or the minds of those of us who are sitting here, Father, that you will remove those. We trust the Spirit to work for whatever purpose you've brought us in here this Sunday, Father. Um, we're excited about what the Spirit has in store to work in our lives as he continues to sanctify us and make us more like Jesus. So thank you for this time, Father. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your love. And we pray this in the name of our King, who one day we'll see again, Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> well, Man, I love the songs that we sung, <clears throat> excuse me, because it kind of sets us up with where I want to start this morning. I love the focus that Emmanuel had for us on Jesus and that we have because of Jesus and because of our identity in him and how he's pursued us and his righteousness. And I just want to start with three things that are true at the exact same time that are important for us to get on the front end of this sermon so we don't get confused on some core things as we go along it. <clears throat> Here's one thing that's true. Every single one of us in the room this morning is made in the image of God. Whether you believe in God, whether you're running from God, whether you think Jesus is true, whether you think Jesus is a joke, none of that changes the fact that you are made in the image of God. And as a person who is made in the image of God, you have amazing value in God's eyes and you have amazing worth in God's eyes. Truth number one. Truth number two is this. Now, for those of us who have responded in faith to Jesus, who are Christians, right, there's this definition of grace that we've said a few times that, and Emmanuel even said it, what we have through Jesus isn't because we've been good enough or sufficient enough. We sung that. What we have in Jesus, the forgiveness, the righteousness, the acceptance is all because of Jesus, what Jesus has done. It's not dependent upon how good you've been or how bad you've been. It is because of grace. And grace means... That there is nothing that you can ever do to make God love you more, and there is nothing that you can ever do to make God love you less. 
We all have value and worth in God's eyes because of grace and because of who God is. There is nothing that we can do to make God love us more. There is nothing that we can do to make us God love us less because God's love for us isn't because of whether we've measured up to him. God's love for us is because of his character. Worth, value, boom. <clears throat> grace means God's acceptance of us doesn't change because whether we're having a good day or a bad day. Those two things are true, absolutely foundational. And then there's this third truth, that as Christians... People who have great value and worth in God's eyes that is unchanging. People who have acceptance in God's eyes because of grace. The third truth is this. At the exact same time, you and I can position ourselves in places where we can be more effective for God or less effective. You and I, of people who have great worth and great value, you and I as believers, if we're Christians, of people who have been forgiven, our acceptance is because of Christ, and there's nothing we can do to make him love us more or less, at the exact same time that those are true, you and I can make free choices to choose that we are going to position ourselves in a certain way that we're positioned to be effective for Jesus should he choose to work, or you and I can choose to make choices to decide things, to do things, to not do things, to position ourselves in ways that we could be less effective for Jesus and that Jesus could work in ways through us that are not the fullest amount of ways that he wants to work through us. One disclaimer is this. There are people all throughout the Bible who wanted nothing to do with God that God's like, bro, I'm still going to use you anyway, right? So God can choose to use us in powerful ways even when we're rebelling from him. So that's the disclaimer. But every single day, in all sorts of different ways, we have a choice of where we're going to position ourselves, how we're going to position ourselves as children of God. Are we going to position ourselves in a way that we're going to be more effective, potentially, if God chooses to work? Or are we going to do some things to position ourselves where we're a little bit out of the channel in the place in which God might want to work through us? And so the question for you and the question for me as we kind of jump into this is, if you're a believer, if you're Christian, how have we positioned ourselves this morning? Where are we positioned? Where have we put ourselves or not put ourselves this morning, this day? Have we, are we positioned in a place that if God chooses to work through his sovereignty through us, we've positioned ourselves so that we can be useful and effective? Or have we said, you know what, I'm just going to go back here. <laughs> And if God wants to work through me, first place, he's going to have to get me in the right position. Where, where are we positioned this morning? Last week's challenge, if you were here, was, hey, we, we talked about that in that church, that small, tiny church a long time ago, that they had an open door, this unique opportunity that God wanted to work through them. And the challenge, I said, was, would you spend six days, and for six consecutive days, would you be willing to pray for God to give you an opportunity, a divine opportunity that he opens the door for you in a unique way and then be willing to walk through it? How? No guilt. Some of you are like, man, no guilt. Like, did you, did you remember that when you walked out the door that you might want to do that? I'm encouraged because, now look, I'll be honest, I'm the pastor. It was my challenge. I think I did it four days. Okay, so... I, I'm not like an angel up here, right? But I was encouraged because I know at least two people in this place did it because I spoke to somebody this week and I put before them an opportunity to do something and they're like, well, bro, he told me I should be looking for an open door and praying for it and so maybe this is it. And I thought, oh, one person has listened, right? 
There's another person who told me about this opportunity this week at a book club. And they went to this book club, and the book was about a person of faith, and it morphed into all these amazing conversations about faith and religion and baggage and grace. And this person had an opportunity to pray uh, for a bunch of people in a book club, and not in a cheesy way, but like in a meaningful way where they invited that. And that was an opportunity that they said they saw that God had put before them. How are we positioned today in terms of opportunities, in terms of effectiveness, in terms of what God may want to do through us today? Here's, that's what we're going to talk about. And we're going to talk about it in Revelation. Surprise, we're going to talk about Revelation. It's going to be 2025, and I'm going to be like, open up your Bible to Revelation chapter 6. And you're all going to be like, aren't there like 20-something chapters? Yep, but it'll be okay. This week, we're in Revelation 3, verses 14 through 22, and we're going to see two things. We're going to see a bad formula, a formula for potential ineffectiveness. If you want to be ineffective, we're going to give you some steps, okay? A formula for potential ineffectiveness, and then we're going to see two cures for ineffectiveness. Formula for potential ineffectiveness and two cures for potential effectiveness. So we're going to be in our last of the seven churches. If you remember the structure of Revelation, if you've been with us, uh, there's some introductory material. We looked at that. And then there's been the majority of the first several chapters into chapter three have been these letters to these seven churches, written about 95 AD, churches that were in existence that were going through some things. We've talked about six of them. We are finishing up on our seventh. Then next week, uh, in two weeks, we're going to look at chapter four, which is amazing portrait of what we know about God right now. What is God doing right now? What is he like? How can we worship him? Who is he? What, what do we see about his attributes? That's going to be next week, chapter 4. Then we're going to have a Christmas season series. Then when we come back in January, we're going to get into pretty much chapters 5 through like 19 and a half-ish is all about I think, things to come. And we'll review how we understand that. Is it things to come? Is it things to happen? And that's where we're going. So we're finishing up this last big structural piece of Revelation, the first one. And here's the church, the seventh church that's our focus. Uh, We see the church in verse 14 where it says this. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. The city that we're looking at, this seventh city, is Laodicea, and we pop up the map. I don't know if you're going to see the map again. This might be your farewell to the map. I know it's been a meaningful part of our journey together. And here's where we started. We started in Ephesus, and we're going around this mail route, this trade route to these seven churches in a uh, clockwise order. Here's Laodicea. The last church, we're looking at a couple of things about Laodicea, where it's positioned, it was positioned on this kind of intersection of some major trade routes. And so over time, because of its position on those trade routes, it grew and it developed to be a, uh, man, major commercial city. As the commerce was growing, so was the banking. Think about Charlotte, North Carolina, a couple of decades ago, this small southern town that all of a sudden all these banks moved into, and boom, huge banking center. Laodicea was a commercial center. It was a banking center, strategic. It, interestingly, had a little uh, industry as well. It produced soft black wool. I don't exactly know how I did that. It dyed it, right? But soft black wool. So it had a big trade, commerce, zippy zippy. It had banking in it. It had this unique industry that kind of became this exclusive, yuppie, high-end type of wool, right? The Cartier of wool, if you wanted that. And because of all those things, man, this city, it was 
It was the Dubai. It was, it was wealthy. They had money. They had the best five-star restaurants. Everybody was driving their Maserati camels. It was like <clears throat> amazing, right? The other thing that was interesting is it had a medical school. And in this medical school, the thing that they were kind of well-known for is they made this eye salve. So this optometry focus so that all throughout the Roman Empire, the eye salve, and this will be kind of important a little later, all, the eye salve will get distributed all throughout the Roman Empire. The downside to living in Laodicea is that it had a little challenge with water. And so most of the water that it got was delivered in through other areas. Most of the water that it got, they had to bring in from other surrounding towns or pipe in. And sticky note that for a little bit later today, because water would have been something they thought about a lot. When you start talking about water and things, they'd be like, oh, yeah, I know what you're talking about. And sadly, this is uh, the only church that was not commended in that city, in Laodicea, there were a group of Christians. And that group of Christians, out of the six that we've already studied, is the only group of Christians that Jesus doesn't say anything good about. Most of the other ones, there's at least something kind of good, right? If I remember correctly, and I, I think this is true, right, that they are the only ones who receive criticisms. Criticisms. And so the question then becomes, okay, well, what was the problems in those churches? What were they criticized for? What wasn't Jesus happy about? And Jesus isn't really happy with them. They have value. They have worth. He cares about them. They are in a relationship with him, right, because of grace. So it's not that he doesn't love them less, right? But the reality is he's not pleased with them because there are some of these like, man, you guys, we got to deal with some things. You're not You've made some choices. You've got some priorities out of whack. Man, I care about you, and so I want to see you in a place that's good for you and meaningful for you, and you're not in that place right now. And so Jesus is going to give them some criticism to try to help bring restoration. Here's what he criticizes them about in verse 15. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Woof. You know what I want to hear? I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. I don't want to hear, what is going on here? What? So let's work our way through it. All right? I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot because you are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot. It's really interesting. A few things to uh, work through here. Your works. What Jesus is looking at is their works. He's saying, look, I don't care what you all say. I don't care the lip service that you give. I don't care the amens, bless you, brother, God is good, praise the Lord. All your words that you may be saying, I'm not looking at that. You you can't throw up a smokescreen with your words to try to spin me, Jesus is saying, about what your life is really like. What I'm drilled in, in Jesus is saying, is what you're doing as Christians. Not just what you're saying, what are you doing? And what Jesus says is when I look at the choices that you've made, when I look at the priorities of your life, if I look at your actions and your deeds, this is what I find. You're neither hot, you're neither cold nor hot, 
right? Says that two or three times. You're neither hot nor cold. You're lukewarm. Now, most every scholar thinks that when Jesus is using cold nor hot, cold nor hot, cold nor hot, these guys, that would have had a unique grab in, in their brain because they would have been very familiar with cold water and hot water in the surrounding areas. What most of the commentators and scholars and historians and theologians says is this is a unique metaphor for that particular city because they're used to cold water and hot water and the importance of that, and they would get it. It'd be like if Jesus was writing <clears throat> to the church at Calvary and said to them, because you are neither Zuparties nor Peppies, but you are Dominoes. <laughs> you would get what that meant, right? Maybe, you know, 2,000 years from now, people would be reading that letter like, what the heck is a Zuparty, right? But we would get that because we're thinking pizza, pizza. That's what these guys were thinking. And here's what's really interesting. There is... Ten miles away from the city of Laodicea, there was a city where there was these cold water springs. It was one of the main sources of water for the city of Laodicea. It would either be piped in or people would get it, and it was cold. It was refreshing, right? What, what is cold, cold water on a hot summer day? I, right, refreshing for drinking, effective if you're sweaty, if you're hot, if it's humid. It is useful, it is effective to give you a little bit of relief. When we went to Brazil, <clears throat> um, the first trip more so than the second trip with a bunch of you guys and gals here. And it was great. I was trying to find a picture, but I couldn't find it. And some of you couldn't. But I looked through a lot of pictures, and it reminded me, if you were on the team, your kids were a team, what an amazing time God did uh, through that. You have a chance, if you've not been to Brazil, you have an opportunity to go to the Dominican Republic with a team of folks here to serve. And there's an informational meeting after that. It's part of how we, as a body, want to reach and impact other people with God's love and truth. And so if you're interested in going on a summer trip to the DR, there's a meeting after this, and there's information in your bulletin. But in Brazil, I don't know if you know this, but when we went, it was hot. And I'm not talking about like yesterday was like 65 degrees, and some of y'all were like, ah, where's my air conditioner? Okay, I mean, Brazil was hot and hot. Okay, and the amazing thing about Brazil, the people are outstanding. There were these amazing four-wheel drive beat Yeah! <laughs> Abrigado. Look at that. Okay, chow. People are amazing. <clears throat> There's this dish called feijoada. Oh. <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. And then <clears throat> there is this soda that will change your life. I think it is salvific, okay? It is this soda called Guadana. <laughs> Man, we got like the Brazilian contingent in the house. There's this soda called Guadana. Now, some of y'all are going to go to Food Bazaar and try and find it, and you're going to get messed up because it's spelled G-U-A-R, but you pronounce Guadana. I'm not a big soda guy. I had one sip of this once, and I'm like, oh, good grief, I'm never going home. And in Brazil, when it was like... A hundred and whatever degrees on this trip as we were doing hard manual labor, sweating our tails off. Every day there was a missionary there named Sergio. And every day when it was in the heat of the day and we were just drenched, Sergio would come around with a bunch of plastic cups and two or three ice cold bottles of Guadana. They weren't warm because a warm bottle of Guadana wasn't going to do any good. But you open it up. 
Then they take the plastic thing and they pour it. And the frost would just come off it. And you'd be like, oh, you would drag yourself and your sweat over to it. And it was so cold and so refreshing. And it was delicious. Cold things refresh you. They are useful. If that was lukewarm, flat Guadana, nope, don't want anything. It doesn't do any good. It's not intent doing what it's intended to do. On the flip side, right, he also talks about how there is this hot water. Um, <clears throat> to the north of them was this city that was known for their hot springs. There would be these hot springs bubbling up, and many people would go from Laodicea to go soak in these hot springs for health reasons, right? If you had arthritis, if you had things going on, you'd go, you'd sit in the hot tub a few miles up the road to the north, and it was effective to help heal you or to help ease your discomfort. And the hot water was good and was helpful. But if either the cold water and the Guadana was lukewarm or those hot springs were lukewarm, neither of those liquids would have accomplished their purposes because they weren't hot, they weren't cold, they were just blah. They're kind of useless. They're not able to do what they're intended to do. And what Jesus is saying is this to this church, guys, it's not like being on fire for Christ or being cold for Christ. He's like, there are things that you should be doing to have a useful, effective purpose, but you're not doing either of them. You're just... You're not effective, you're not useful because of how you have positioned yourself. There's one commentator who says these words, the church was providing neither refreshment for the spiritual weary nor healing for the spiritually sick. It was providing neither refreshment for the spiritual weary nor healing for the spiritually sick. It was totally ineffective. Didn't mean they didn't have value and worth. Didn't mean that their relationship with Christ wasn't secure because of the work of Christ. But it meant that in their works, because of how they positioned themselves, because of what they had thought of, they were useless. They were ineffective. They were a flat, hot soda on a hot summer day that doesn't do any good. And so because of that, and these are harsh words, what does Jesus say to those guys? He says this in verse 16, because you're not hot, because you're not cold, essentially because you're useless, what Jesus says is, hey, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Now, this does not mean that they lose their salvation. Our salvation is not linked with whether we're in seasons of effectiveness or seasons of ineffectiveness. Our salvation is anchored to God seeing us as value, Jesus' substitutionary death for us. It is linked to our faith response to what Jesus did, and it is secure. There is nowhere in the Bible that says you can lose your salvation. Some of you may believe that. I know the passages you're going to tell me, but you're not, they're not telling you you can lose your salvation. What the Bible talks about is every single person that the Father gives to me, Jesus says, nobody can pluck them out of my hand. What it's saying is, hey, the people that the Father pursues and the Spirit pursues and gets drawn into a relationship with Jesus, Jesus holds them in his hand and holds them in his hand so tightly that nothing can ever, 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 ever get them out of that relationship, including themselves. No one, Jesus says, will ever pluck them out of my hands. 
That means you can't pluck yourself out of Jesus' hands. You didn't get into his hands because of you. You got into his hands because of him and your faith response to that. And you can't get out of his hands because of you. Because if you could, it wouldn't be grace. It would be your effort, which it's not. Okay? So there's very, well, no, there's several times that I'll say the Bible just doesn't say that. It doesn't say that you can lose your salvation. So know that. This isn't about losing your salvation. The, the, the idea here, though, is Jesus is saying, guys, the, the, the idea is a little bit of, I don't, know, is dis, I don't know if disgust is the right word, but like, oh, the, the nuance here, if you look at it, is this idea that, man, it's just, it, it, what they're doing is just making Jesus a little sick to his stomach, and it's like, blah, it's making me get it out. Blah. I went to an unnamed fair in Connecticut. And when I went to this unnamed fair in Connecticut, I ate in an unnamed food cart that was selling chicken kebabs. I thought to myself on this unnamed day at this unnamed fair, you know, I'm going to eat about 42 pieces of fried dough in about a minute. So I don't need a sausage peppers, right? I don't, I'm going to have something healthy. I'm going to have a chicken kebab. Now, have you ever had a chicken, piece of chicken? No. I mean, it's, it's okay if you're a vegetarian, but I expect like at least 10 of you have had a piece of chicken. Well, let me tell you a little bit about chicken, okay? Let me tell you about steak. The best way to eat a steak, and this is, um, I'm right about this too. The best way to eat a steak is medium rare. It is. It is. Amen. Okay. You do not want to eat chicken medium rare. When you bite into chicken, you want a warm, delicious, warmth fully cooked. I got my chicken kebab at this fair, and <laughs> you do not want to have the experience I had. You know what happened when I bit into my chicken? A crunch, because it wasn't cooked. <laughs> I took a delicious bite of something that was a little cooked to the outside, and the moment I got through that first layer of chicken, the inside was raw and cold and cr- Yes! You know what I did? Blah! <laughs> I spit it out of my mouth, right? Because I'm like, that, that is not what I want. That is going to make me, that, there's so, uh, I don't want it in there. I don't want to deal with it. It's not what I want. Like, I wanted something different. Why can't what I have be something different? Why is this? So I'm just like, blah! And what Jesus is doing is that, man, there's a little bit of this, blah, it's not what I want. It's a little nauseating. It makes me sick to my stomach a little bit because it's ineffective and because it's useless. Here's the formula this morning that we're going to take a look at. Here's the last piece. And I thought about, is this harsh, nauseating? Maybe it is, but it captures the nuance of what Jesus in the text is saying, that something plus something plus something, which we'll talk about in a minute, can, doesn't always, but has the potential in a Christian's life to lead to nauseating ineffectiveness and uselessness. Doesn't change your value doesn't change your relationship with God, but it changes where you've positioned yourself and you're positioning yourself for ineffectiveness and uselessness. Now, again, disclaimer, God, man, God worked through Pharaoh. Pharaoh is this dude in the Old Testament who rebelled against God, and God's like, bro, I'm going to crush you. That's how I'm going to work through. There are exceptions to this, but generally, this is the formula. So the question is, well, what are those blanks? What, what is Jesus is saying is leading to this. And, and here's what. I don't want Jesus to think I'm ineffective. I don't. 
I mean, I want to be effective. I want to be effective. I want, now, I can't control that. What I, I can't. And that's something that I think is, maybe as we mature, we realize that. I think when I was in my 20s, I'm like, I read all the books, I heard the passion conferences, I listened, and I'm like, I'm going to change the world. Well, God and His sovereignty chooses in His grace how and when He uses people in what ways at what times. And people can't decide whether they're going to change the world. People can decide are they going to live their lives choice after choice in a way that they position themselves at certain times for God to work through them if He chooses and when He chooses to work. But I don't want to be ineffective. Do you? I don't want to be useless. Do do you want to be useless to God? And if you do, it's okay. Hey, keep coming back. Grab a turkey thing and bring it back next week. But I hope you don't want to. I mean, the God who created us, who loves us, Jesus who died to rescue us, I don't want my legacy to be a life of choices that I'm purposely doing things to make myself ineffective. I want to be like, man, I'm going to do what I can to try to serve Jesus well and hope that he works in ways that I can see the fruit. Uh, do you want to be ineffective? Do you want to be useless? Well, if we don't, then what do we need to know? What do we need to watch out for in these boxes, right? And so that's what he's going to start telling them, and he, we've already read it, and we haven't read it. Verse 17. So, but, but don't miss the word, because these, these, this is why I love studying Scripture. 16, he says, hey, you're lukewarm, not hot or cold, so I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Verse 17, in my translation and probably whatever it is, same idea, starts with four, right? Four. So I'm about to spit you all out of my mouth. You're like raw chicken to me. Here's the reasons why, right? This connects it. This is the because. This is the explanation. Here's why. Four, you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Oof! I don't want Jesus to say that about me either. Hey, you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Now, value, yes, still, right? Grace, yes, but effectiveness? Man, okay. So why is Jesus, here's what Jesus is saying is causing that nauseating, ineffective use. First thing, first you say, I am rich, I have prospered. What the Laodiceans and the Christians of this churches were so wealthy. They were so wealthy. And somehow that wealth is playing into how they're positioning themselves in this obstacle and this challenge. But, but it's not just that they were wealthy, right? It's this, it's this pronoun that's in front of it. It's not because for you say, God has blessed me. God has helped me prosper. They're wealthy and the pronoun is important. They think that's all because of them. I've done it. I've prospered. There's this idea that, man, they're the source of everything and every blessing that they have. That they didn't need God to get there, and I have prospered. And then look at this. Not only have I done all this myself, look at the next line. Oh, this is not a good thing for a Christian to say, I need nothing. No. 
If you're sitting here and you're sitting now, like, look, my forerunner is working amazingly. I don't need a better car. It's perfect, right? So it's okay to say things like this. But if you're like, yo, you know what? Man, I got it going on. I am loaded. And I got to that place all because of me. And me? I don't need anybody. I don't even need you, God, because I'm wealthy. I made myself that way. I don't need anybody. I don't need God. I'm self-sufficient. I'm independent. I'm self-reliant. Boom! Let's go get it done. They thought that they had gotten all that stuff because of themselves. They thought that they could continue to get themselves everything, and they thought that they didn't need anyone else in their story, including God. And their wealth and their arrogance and their misplaced self-reliance, man, created this smugness and this arrogance that led to this place to give them a wrong view of themselves. Because that's what Jesus says next. Hey, what Jesus says is, look, this is how you describe yourself, rich, prospered, need nothing, but let me tell you all something. Let me tell you what you guys are really like. You guys don't realize that because of those very attitudes, because of that very arrogance, actually, you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. You're not as great Laodicean Christians as you think you are. You think you're all that. And in thinking that you're all that because of all you not needing anybody else, you've actually made yourself ineffective and useless to me, and it kind of disgusts me, Jesus says. Because you have value, and you have worth, and because I love you, and because I made you, and because I know the way I want to work through you, but it ain't because of you, Bubba. It's because of me, Jesus is saying. When we pull all this together, here's the formula that we see. Comfort and wealth, I'm rich, I'm prosperous, plus self-reliance, me, 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 right? Plus wrong view of yourself can, it doesn't necessarily, but it can lead as a Christian to nauseating ineffectiveness and uselessness. Comfort and wealth mixed with self-reliance mixed with you don't even see yourself as you really are, can position us in places where maybe the story is a season of ineffectiveness and uselessness. This morning, just knowing some of your stories, and know, this morning, not even knowing your story, this morning knowing what other people in this church body have said about what some of you have done. That's what I get to hear. What I get to hear is not a lot of you bragging a lot to us about what you've done. What we get to hear is a lot of other people telling us how much they've benefited from what you've done. That's pretty cool. And this morning, knowing how you have hurt, impacted other people, there are a ton of you, right, who this morning are being useful and effective, and you're positioning yourselves in places that God in His grace and through His Spirit is working through all the attributes, all the personality that He's got gave you. You're obeying God. You're prioritizing his kingdom. You're giving of yourself. And, and you're just putting yourself in that place that if he wants to work through you, that he's working through you. Good job. That's amazing. It's amazing some of the stories of how God is using you in useful ways to benefit other people in this church or in our community. That's great.
well done. Well done. But maybe in a group this size or whatever we have online, there are others who may not be in a season of effectiveness or use. Maybe you're not in a season of effectiveness or use. And there could be a lot of reasons for that. This book has some countless options for you to consider if that's your story. But maybe one of the reasons for this is because this equation captures your story right now. Maybe some of the reasons you're not in a season of effectiveness or usefulness is because this equation captures your story right now. One of the obstacles for these people is their, was their wealth. Was their wealth. <clears throat> and several times in the story of Jesus, his biographers write about people who their wealth kept them, their prioritization of their wealth kept them from meaningful engagement in his kingdom. It wasn't their wealth, it was their prioritization of that. It wasn't their money, it was that they loved their money more than they loved Jesus. The problems, and this is so important, there were so many people in this book who God made them so loaded, it was like, man, give me some of that, right? The, the problem is not the money, the problem is not having money. The problem is prioritizing money or comfort over prioritizing Jesus. The problem is not being rich. It is never, ever, 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 ever a sin to be rich, okay? What is a sin is the attitude that you may or may not have about your money and about being rich. It's never the Benjamins. It's the prioritization or the attitude around the money, that's really important to hear because, again, we've said it many times, God used people with incredible wealth in the Bible and worked through that wealth to accomplish His purposes because they were stewards of it, because they got it. Matthew 6, 4. No one can serve two masters, right? This is a conversation about prioritization, about value, about what's important. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Jesus says you can't serve both God and money. you got to serve one. You can have both God and money, but at the end of the day, one's got to be more in the other than the important. And when people say, I'm going to make comfort and wealth more important than Jesus, it starts to get us into a pathway we may not want to start going on. Next one, right? This, and this, I think, shows this is a great For the love of money. It doesn't say for money is the root of all evil, because it's not. It's the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. Flip back to the formula, if you could, for a minute. And, and maybe for some of us this morning, it's that comfort and that, that prioritization of money is what's making you ineffective. Is there some way that God wants to use you? And you know what it is. You know. But it's going to have a financial impact. It's going to financially cost something. And you're like, nope. Nope. It's not whether you know God. I remember when I was thinking about going to seminary. Lawyer, killing it, doing great, boat, country club, blah, 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 okay? And I remember processing through, am I supposed to? And I, and I made just one comment after about a year to the guy that was just kind of helped me discern that. And I let this slip out. And he was a lawyer too, which was dangerous. I made the comment of, well, I mean, I know I'm supposed to go to seminary, but he's like, nope. You just said you know you're supposed to go to seminary. We're now done talking about whether you think you should go. Now the question is, are you going to go? 
That's a pivotal leap for some of you. Maybe you know exactly what it is God wants you to do. You don't need to pray about it. You don't need to discern it. You don't need to text anybody about it. You know. But you also know that there's going to be a financial cost. You also know that there's going to be a comfort cost. And you aren't willing to suffer that cost. And I'm hitting this hard this morning. I've said it now two times. Because I actually do hope that there's some of you in the room who are processing through that. I actually do hope that there's some of you that God has put an amazing potential opportunity, or maybe even not that, maybe just something he wants you to obey him in. And that you've been praying about, oh, and you've been wrestling with fear. I can remember, I can remember mowing my lawn, listening to a sermon. Man, it was just like boom for where I was discerning that chapter of my life. And I honestly hope that some of you have been praying about something like, God, show me clearly if I'm supposed to do this. I'm afraid to give up the money. I'm afraid to go into the unknowns. I'm afraid to suffer the cost. And you dragged yourself here on a rainy day to have this guy up front saying, look, do you know what God wants you to do, but it's the risk of loss of finances or security that is keeping you from doing it? Maybe that's not what is causing your season of experience. ineffectiveness or potential, but you know what maybe it is for you? Boom. Self-reliance. Because everything good in your life, you've bought into Fairfield County, and you think it's all because of you. And you went to a great school, or you're going to a great school, and you're a great athlete, or you were a great athlete, and you have a great family, and you have a beautiful house, and your kitchen cabinets, top match. Your car brews coffee for you when you get in it in the morning. (laughs) And what you think to yourself is, ooh, I've done good. No, you haven't. God's been good. God's been good. And God's saying, look at what I've given to you. Because I want you to use that in effective ways for my kingdom. I want you to be effective. I want you to be useful. But you're so stinking arrogant. Or... You're so stinking self-reliant. I can do it. I can do it. I can fix it. I can make it happen. I can plan it. And what Jesus says to these people are, man, you're not as great as you think you are. Value, worth, grace. I don't love you less. I won't love you more. But you're not positioning yourselves in an effective, meaningful way. And remember how he describes them. You can flip to the verse where he describes them. Pitiful, wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Oof. Okay. A friend of mine who comes here uh, this week read the, the chapter in advance and, uh, you know, preparing himself, which is amazing. And I appreciate a comment that he, th- this grabbed him, and I think I appreciate his insight and what he shared with me about this description of something. Wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I'll, you may not know this, but do you know that there's a world's ugliest dog competition? Did you know that? I am going to reveal to you now the winner of the 2022 World's Ugliest Dog. (laughs) You actually just, you actually just did the, 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 you just lived my illustration pinging off my buddy. Because you know what some of y'all just did? Oh. You know what others of you did? Oh. Right? One's a, oh. One's a, ah, oh. <laughs> when we see, this is the, 
This is the world's ugliest dog. It is. It's the self-proclaimed winner. Now, when, <laughs> when some of us see something that's ugly, what some of us do is, ugh, we don't want anything to do with it. It is wretched. It is poor. It is pitiable. It is naked. I think it might even be blind, right? Some of us are like, ugh. But what others of you did on your own intuitively is you went, oh, because you see the little puppy and he's like, oh, he's so sad and ugly. <laughs> and you want to take care of the little puppy. Me? I'm like, that puppy comes near me. I am kicking it. I don't care what you say. You can fire me. You can say I don't love Jesus. But if that thing starts running to me, baby, it's go time. But those of y'all would be like, oh, come, let's play on the floor. What Jesus is saying is when we get in that pattern and we got money and we're arrogant and we're self-reliant and we think we're all that, we don't even see ourselves as we really are. And when we see things that aren't kind of the way, we can either be repulsed by it or we can be drawn to it and say, man, I want to care for it. I want to help it. When I get down the track of that formula, and I prioritize money, and I prioritize comfort, and I become arrogant, and I become self-reliant, and when you do that, do you know how Jesus responds to you? He doesn't run from you. He doesn't run from you. He still says, Y'all are poor, pitied, pitiable, naked, and blind. You're that. But man, I want to take care of you. I want to help you. I want to nurture you. I want to feed you. We see that in the very next piece of the passage because Jesus, after describing, right, the ver- in here, he talks about what he sees us as, what we really are. And then just a few chapters down, right, it, we see this amazing image of him not running from us, but him running toward us when we've positioned ourselves ineffectively. Verse 20, I'm about to blow some of your evangelicalism tracks out of the water. I don't care because those tracks are wrong too, okay? Look at what he says. Jesus is talking to people who have positioned themselves ineffectively, who are arrogant, who are smug, who are complacent, who are ineffective, who have prioritized all sorts of things over him, who are self-reliant, who aren't upon him and he says man I'm going to give you a snapshot of what you really are and he tells them like guys I want to you're making me sick but then look what he says to them verse 20 behold I stand at the door and knock and if anyone hears my voice and opens my door I will come in and eat with him and he with me listen this is not said to non-Christians do you hear me? It's not. When you tell a non, I'm just, when you give out a track that says, Jesus, if you're not a Christian, is knocking at the door of your heart. No, that is wrong. This isn't written to non Christians. This is written to Christians who have a relationship with Jesus. And he says, you know what? You all slammed the door on me. But guess what? I'm not running from you, even though you're running from me. I'm running towards you. I'm running towards you, and I'm standing outside of your life, someone who values you, someone who knows you, someone who died for you, 
someone who created you in advance to do good works, to be effective for the kingdom, and in your arrogance and your smugness and your religiosity and your pride and all of the blessings I've given to you, you have slammed the door on me. But bro, broette, I'm knocking because I want to come in because I want to be with you. And I want you to be with me. When you have a meal in that culture, that was like a meaningful source of connection and fellowship and relationship. And Jesus says, man, I, wanna, I want our relationship to be one of fellowship and nurturing and meaningful. This isn't written to non-Christians to have a relationship with Jesus. This is written to Christians who have slammed the door on a relationship to Jesus because they've elevated other things and their arrogance and their pride. Jesus is saying, come on. Come on, I could run from you, I could kick you, but I'm running towards you. For some of you this morning, what you need to know, Jesus is running towards you. Jesus is running towards you. And he's knocking. And he's saying, what are you doing? Why are you slamming the door? Jesus then, in his love and his grace, he gives us ways to move towards more effectiveness and to position ourselves. And we skip back up a little verse because now he's going to tell us what to do. Verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you might be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see yourself as you really are, right? First thing that Jesus says is, I counsel you, verse 18, to buy gold refined by fire. What Jesus is saying is like, look, you you need to have purity. You need to have spirituality. You have to need all those things. But you're not going to get it on your own through your own self-reliance, your own efforts. You need to come to me for that. You need to get that from me. You need to stop depending on you And you need to start depending on me. We position ourselves back in a place of effectiveness. We open the door to renewed meaning, to let Jesus back in, and we we engage with him. We, in this story, Jesus didn't close the door. Jesus didn't close the door. I'm the one who closed the door. Not as a non-Christian, as a Christian. And what Jesus is saying is, hey, to get back to that, all the things you think you can do on your own, you're self-reliant, you don't mean any, man, you need to come back and get all of that from me. You need to depend upon me. First remedy for spiritual ineffectiveness is this idea of depending on Jesus. Depending on Jesus. I've, I've shared this before, but I think it's going to be an amazing We're going to see it next week. We're going to have, I don't know how many kids up here uh, being dedicated and families. And and the job of a parent, if you've been a parent, if you're a grandparent, and if you don't think this is your job, then we will have a one-on-one parenting conversation right now. The goal of your job as a parent is to do everything you can to one day make that child completely independent. Think about it. There's going to be moms up here and dads holding little babies. There ain't none of us who want to be holding a 27-year-old. There's going to be a little baby up here next week, or there's going to be a little brother. 
He's going to have on a tie. It's going to be amazing, okay? And that little child's going to start to get a little, eh. So you know what the mom or dad's going to do? They're going to pull like a, some parents will pull a carrot stick out because whatever. Others will pull a Cheerio out. Me, I would have pulled like a chocolate out. Like, and they're going to start putting a little food in to try to distract the little kid to make him happy for another 27 seconds. But when that child is 35 years old, the mom and dad don't want to be putting spaghetti in their mouth. We teach our children to walk so that we don't need to carry them. We teach our children to feed themselves so that we don't need to feed them. We do everything we can as a parent to ultimately make our child independent of us. But Jesus does just the opposite. Jesus does everything he can to make us totally dependent upon him. Every circumstance in our life, he purposely uses and leverages to draw us more towards dependence. And the second thing he says to do, and this is, I love this, this is great, right? In a city where they were known for their eye salve to help people see better, where their medical school would ship that all around the Roman Empire and they sell it on Facebook Marketplace, right? Where eye salve to help you see better was a big thing. He says there's a second thing you need to do, verse 18. And you need a salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. You need salve to anoint your eyes because you're blind to what your condition is right now. And you need to see yourself clearly. Because we're never going to turn from what we shouldn't be in unless we truly see the way it's impacting us and what we look like in those moments. These Christians were blind to their true ineffective conditions. So the second remedy is this. Accurately see your spiritual condition. Accurately see your spiritual condition. Jesus runs towards them. Jesus gives them two things to do. And what if they choose not to do that? What if this morning you hear this and you're like, yeah, whatever, Smith, I know better. What if this morning you're saying to yourself, yeah, that's great, Peter. Maybe for somebody who's not as smart as me, they should actually listen to that. But, but I can handle this. I got it. I can take care of it. What if these people in their pride continued down the path? Well, then Jesus tells them what he's going to do in verse 19. Look, I'm telling you all what to do. He says, come to me in dependence to get what you need. Get the salve on your eyes and see what you need. But if you don't do those because I love you so much, because I love you so much, those whom I love I reprove and discipline. What Jesus is saying is that continuing in the attitudes that brought about your ineffectiveness may bring about God's discipline. And as a pastor in Atlanta says all the time whenever he talks about discipline, that is not God doing that to pay you back. That is God doing that to bring you back. As a parent, we discipline our children. If you discipline your child when you're angry, then you're not in the right state of mind. As a parent, we don't discipline out of anger to try to show the kid, yeah, well, I'll show you. I, <laughs> I've heard some of the ways the parents have disciplined their children. I'm like, y'all are knuckleheads, right? I'll show you. Give me that phone. And you take the phone out of a sledgehammer. You're like, ah, come on, come on. Okay. If you're angry and you want to prove to your kid that you have more power, so you're sledgehammering their phone and out of anger, like I'm bigger than you, I can, okay, that's, we don't discipline out of anger. Now, if you've calmed down, and if you realize that that phone is the spawn of Satan for your child and you want to make a dramatic moment and smash it, but you're calm, I guess that's okay, right? What do I care? It's your phone. But we don't discipline out of anger. We don't do things because we're angry at our kids to prove to them neither does Jesus. 
As the pastor says, so I love this line, he doesn't do these things to pay these people back. He does these things to bring these people back because he loves them. And all that we need to know is because God loves us so much, if we continue in the things that have brought about our ineffectiveness, that may one day, some way, bring about God's discipline. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up here as we wind down our service today. Seven churches with all sorts of different lessons. It would be useful regularly to go back and, if you've taken notes, skim through, hey, what, what as a self-evaluation, what were the problems in those churches? What were the opportunities in those churches? And use what Jesus says to Christians a long time ago to be meaningful for us. But just a few thoughts as we end our time this morning. For those of you who are humbly depending on Jesus and striving to be effective for him, keep pressing on. The road may be tough, the skies may be cloudy, but keep walking on. For those of you who today that formula applied, or maybe it doesn't apply today, but maybe it will in some chapter or some season in your moment, then what I would challenge you to is if this applied to you today, then maybe today at 10, 19, and 17 seconds is the moment that you say, man, I'm going to turn from self-reliance and turn to dependence. You're going to need the Holy Spirit to do that, but maybe today's the day you say, okay, Holy Spirit, I want to stop being so smugly self-reliant, and I need to depend on you. And will your Spirit give me the willingness to even want to move toward dependence to you? And maybe today is the day that you slammed that door shut on Jesus as a Christian. I mean, you slammed it. You padlocked it, you locked it, and maybe you didn't do that through rebellion. We can do that through addictions and affairs. But maybe sometimes in churches like this, the way that we slam the door is by hypocrisy, legalism, religiosity, and moralism. And we say, I don't really need you, Jesus, because I can be a nice person on my own. Boom. Boom. And maybe for some of us, today's the day that Jesus is knocking. And we're like, man, Jesus, I'm going to open the door. I'm going to open the door. Let's sing and worship together.